Well, welcome, church. It's Sunday night, and we, uh, we do Sunday night church. We're back in Romans, finishing a study that began a year ago. This is part 59, the letter that changed the world, the biblical theology of Romans. And here's the title for tonight's teaching from Romans 15. I want to talk to you about confirming God's faithfulness, magnifying his mercy, and living in hope. Romans 15, it's a different sort of a text. It's not a light, breezy, kind of flow through nicely text. It's kind of involved. It's got a lot in it. We have to kind of think our way through the verses. Romans 15, verses 8 to 16. Get a Bible. Let's study together. For I tell you, Paul's writing, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs. So Christ became a Jew and he's going to show God's faithfulness to the covenant made with Abraham. Nine. And in order that the Gentiles, now this is different, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now he's going to prove this idea of Christ coming for Gentiles by quoting from the, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. Middle of verse 9, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. 10, and again it is said, rejoice O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples, peoples, people groups, nations, let all the peoples extol him. And again, going right back to Isaiah, Isaiah says the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. That's the end of the quote. Now Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I like that, abounding in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all the knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So that's good. 15, but on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, so he's repeating something, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, long sentence, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's quite a text. I mean, one of the great advantages of working your way through a letter like Romans is that you not only see the truths that were important in the mind of Paul, but you also, if you're careful, you also see how he arrives at those truths. So, so in other words, you see not only the ideas, but you see, you see the big picture, how he approaches and applies the ideas. I think it helps working through a book of the Bible in that you learn to study kind of the deep truths of God's word because you discover not only the destination of Paul's thought, but you get to see the journey of it. Today's text is a great example of this. If you had to back up a bit, 
we finished our study last Sunday night, Romans 15, 1 to 7. And this is where, for a couple of weeks we looked at this, Paul focused on the duty of the strong to bear with the tender consciences of the weak. So, so those who were raised in Judaism, who had lived their whole lives, as long as they could remember, equating the law of Moses with divine revelation from Almighty God, they might have a hard time seeing the fulfillment of that old covenant with the coming of Christ. In other words, they might have a hard time letting go of some of those regulations regarding feast days and fastings and circumcision. So a lot of these uh, Jewish converts, they still hadn't learned how to internalize their, their freedom in Christ in terms of those old covenant issues, like the book of Hebrews says, they just have become obsolete. They were given by God. They had a purpose. They weren't bad, but they aren't needed anymore. And a lot of Jewish converts to Christianity had a hard time leaving those things behind. And Gentiles who had come to Christ, those who didn't have to unload all of that old covenant Jewish heritage, they found it much easier to understand the way Christ replaced all those ceremonies with his own Shed blood, his life, his shed blood, his death, his resurrection. And these Gentile converts could very easily just ride roughshod over all the regulations that the tender consciences of these Jewish converts couldn't let go of very easily. And Paul commands these strong Christians who understood their freedom in Christ, Paul says, don't do that. They're to serve the tender consciences of their brothers and sisters, and they're to do it the way Christ served us all, leaving behind all of his rights. And they're to lay down their rights just the way Christ put aside his. They're to do nothing. They're to do nothing to train these Jewish believers to go against their conscience because there will be big issues down the road and and. And we all need to follow our conscience because whatever is not of faith is sin. We talked about that a great deal last week. So, so Paul's concern when he talks about this eating and drinking, circumcision, eating and drinking, his concern isn't that my drinking might turn someone else into an alcoholic. I mean, there might be other texts that would take you down that road in that direction. But that's not the concern of the Romans text. Paul's concern isn't that I might destroy my weak brother or sister's sobriety. It's that I might destroy his faith by leading him or her to act against conscience and things that they feel God is speaking to them about. So that's the summons of all of the previous texts leading up to tonight's. That's the conclusion. But Paul never just tells people, what they should do. Don't do this, do this. Um, Paul always has a theology behind his commandments. In other words, he gives you doctrine and then applies that doctrine. And we need to know that theology. We're never out to be just nice people or moral people, not even just loving people. We're out to be godly people. We want to know the reasons of 
the Spirit of God for the things He tells us to do and the changes He wants to make in our hearts. And that's what Paul does in this kind of involved text tonight. I have five thoughts that I want to bring out of this, out of this text. One, if I don't understand the big plan of God, I will always find his commands unreasonable. If I don't understand the big plan, the big picture, I will always find the specific command to be a burden, something unreasonable. I get that in, in verses 8 through 12. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's quote number one. Number two, and again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Third quote, 11. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. Quote number four from Isaiah. The root of Jesse will come, even he who raises, who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles hope. What's going on here? There's, there's almost nothing that makes Bible reading seem more boring than a string of Old Testament quotes back to back to back. I get that. So why is Paul doing this right now? He must have a reason. I mean, the whole thrust of chapter 14 and the early part of 15, it all seems so practical, just so applicable to the situation. Why this sudden burst of Old Testament recitation? And Paul does make a very direct link. Do you see it at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, where he joins the practical with the doctrine that he applies in the practical? So, 7 and 8. Therefore, welcome one another, strong and weak, okay? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There's the practical. And then right away, verse 8, for, when you see that word for, Paul is saying, here's the reason for this practical instruction. For, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. What, what would make a Jewish believer, one who had been raised his whole life to view any failure to obey those Old Testament regulations as just rebellion against God, what would make that Jewish Christian stop judging his Gentile brother who didn't keep those very important laws and regulations to his mind? And perhaps even closer to home for most of us, Gentiles, what would make a Gentile Christian, one who had come to Christ without even hearing the laws 
stinging the Jewish conscience, what would make that Gentile Christian vow to never exercise his freedom in Christ if his Jewish brother or sister were offended? I mean, these are both huge demands. This is highly relevant in today's church. What makes Christians rein in their natural instincts of what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable in disputable matters? So Paul gives these strong and weak Christians, these Gentile and Jewish believers, he gives an overview. This is what he's doing of the whole plan of God to include Jews and Gentiles together in his redemptive purpose. Here's why. He does this because if each group, if they don't see how they fit in, if they don't see Paul's words as part of a holy divine calling, they're going to chafe against his words. They'll rationalize and excuse and ignore, and they won't hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Here's the principle. I think we will all find obedience to the Lord more immediately pleasing and palatable if when our first reaction is to pretend we didn't hear him speak, we remind ourselves that his specific request is linked up with his overall plan. He has a plan. We make obedience tougher when we only see his immediate command rather than his overall plan to free us from self and draw us into a new creation. I know that's quite involved, but this happens over and over again in the church. Here, just picture two people. I'm not going back to the days of Paul. Right now, here are two people who are at odds with each other. They're in the church. They're Christians. They both know they ought to love and offer grace and forgiveness to each other, regardless of who's at fault, but they usually don't. And the reason they usually don't is they only see God's bare command, his immediate command to repent, humble up, make amends. And they don't want to make amends. That happens all the time. What they usually don't think through is there's a reason for the Holy Spirit's command to make amends. God is going to bring all his people together in a new creation and in eternity. So these two enemies in the body of Christ, they're going to be very long-term roommates. And God wants to prepare each of them for that moment when they will, even if they don't believe it right now, they will fall into each other's arms with brotherly and sister devotion. But they aren't thinking straight right now. They're being short-sighted. And obedience will always be hard for the short-sighted who have forgotten God's big plan. That's what this text is all about. In today's text, Paul calls to remembrance the big plan of God for Jew and Gentile. The biggest division that there was in the church at that time. Particularly, that right from the beginning, it was God's will to bring both Jew and Gentile together into one people, and that everything God did and created 
in creating the races of humanity, in sending his son into the world and his spirit into our hearts. It was all designed to magnify the richness of his saving grace. And so that's the theology that Paul, it makes his call to obedience urgent, reasonable, fitting in with the big picture, the goal of hope down the road. Paul knows if they don't think right, they're not going to obey right. If they don't think right, they're not going to obey right. Point number two. The Jews, let's start here. The Jews are to remember God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. That's in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So, so the important thought here that Paul stresses, God wasn't abandoning the Jews just because he was showing grace to the Gentiles. So they weren't, think that, they weren't to think he wasn't being faithful to his promises. And Paul actually seems to underscore just how committed God was to the Jews by reminding them that Christ became a Jew out of God's desire just to show how deep his commitment was to the promise he made to Abraham. So, so the aim of, of this verse seems to be based on the recognition that the Jew, that's the weaker brother in Paul's argument, who, who just can't, can't understand how these Gentile believers can't take these old covenant regulations seriously. So the Jew, the weaker brother, he would have the tendency to judge the Gentile. That's the stronger Christian in Paul's argument. The Jew would judge the Gentile for not feeling the same compulsion of that Old Testament law that he felt. You saw this, for example, go back to 14.3. Let not the one who abstains... That's the Jew. He's not going to touch that meat, that drink. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. That's the Gentile. For God has welcomed him. So, so I don't have to feel threatened. This is Paul's word to the Jew. Don't have to feel threatened that the whole plan of God is going to pot just because someone takes a different view of propriety on some no longer scriptural issue. God, Paul assures the Jew, is still keeping his plan to his people, being faithful to his covenant to Abraham. He still has the whole world in his hands. Point number three, I said I had five thoughts. Three, the Gentile now is called over and over again to magnify God for his amazing grace. I get that in 15.9. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, quote, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So this is the repeated theme right through uh, verses 10 through 12. And the obvious point of application to all of us, we will find it easier to rein in our own rights for the sake of our weaker brother or sister, when we remember the depths to which God's grace went to reach us. That's the point. Grace, fully relished, tasted, savored, appreciated, it
always crucifies any expression of self-life, pride, self-assertion. So here again, we see the fleshing out of the first principle of this teaching. Remember what I said. If I don't understand the big plan of God and appreciate my role in it, if I don't see the theology behind it, I will always find his command unreasonable. But if I grasp the depth to which God, right from the very beginning, the depth he had in crucifying his own son to extend his grace for my well-being, then my the call that comes to me to lay down my rights for my weaker brother is surely made lighter when I appreciate Christ who laid down all of his rights to redeem me. Point number four. Grasping God's big plan enables a ready obedience. And it does this by filling our minds with an overpowering abiding hope. Now we're looking at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Why this sudden emphasis on hope? So here's the command, the command to the weaker brother, the Jew who still keeps all these regulations. Don't judge the Gentile for not obeying them. The command to the Gentile, don't you partake in anything that's going to hurt the conscience of your Jewish brother. Okay, it's all very practical. And we've looked at how you need to understand God's big picture plan to bring Jew and Gentile together into one body. So why now? Now all of a sudden it's like there's a different subject altogether. This subject of hope in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If the call to obedience to both the strong Gentile believer, the weaker Jewish believer, if it sometimes seems restrictive to the desires of self, the, the narrowness of the path is made exciting by remembering the glory of the destination. That's where this hope thing fits in. This is exactly, by the way, this is exactly the way Jesus themed up this whole subject of following him in discipleship. Here's some familiar words. You know these verses. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus speaks about following him. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many, circle many, easy and many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few, circle few, many, many on the wide, few on the narrow, and so you, you stop and you say, so, so what would possibly make people choose a narrow, restricted, confining way over an option that is clearly described in verse 13 as wide and easy? I mean, it seems to make no sense. And in fact, 
It doesn't make sense to many people. The fact that it doesn't make sense is obvious that Jesus says the vast majority of people seeing both options, the vast majority choose the wide, easy path. That's what he says. Why? Why do many choose the wide, easy path? They do so because, here it is, they're looking at the path. They're not looking at the destination. Why would anyone choose willingly a narrow path? The path that's described as hard, a path where you have to lay down, you can't carry everything on that narrow path. And what you have to lay down is your own rights, like the strong do for the weak in our Romans 15 text. Why would they do it? Why would people choose a narrow path? Well, they would do it because they look at the destination. They want a journey with hope. They want a path that goes somewhere, a path with hope at the end of it. The path does cost a great deal. It's not an easy stroll. Luke, in fact, throws an additional detail about what it takes to choose the narrow path of hope. He says in uh, Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. You have to work at it. So hope, keep the destination in mind. There are things better to think about than your petty disputes in the body of Christ. Look at where you're both headed in God's overall plan, the big plan. Last point, point number five. Because knowing the big plan of God enables a more ready obedience, we are in constant need, this is important, we are in constant need of being reminded of it. It's not that we don't know it. We'll squabble and bicker if we aren't reminded of it. I get that in verses 14 through 16. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That's all good. 15. But on some points, we know what those points are because he's just been dealing with them for two chapters, 14 and 15. It's this issue of the strong and the weak and divisions in the body of Christ. On some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of, here it is, reminder, circle reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot there, but just this. The weak Jew didn't need reminding that some of the Gentiles weren't keeping the Old Testament regulations that he felt were important. And the strong Gentile didn't need reminded that, reminding that he had a freedom in Christ Jesus that didn't require the keeping of those Old Testament feasts and fasts and regulations in order to be right with God. So each group had its position firmly figured out. No need to remind of that. What both groups were in danger of forgetting was the big picture, the big plan of God for his creation. I mean, they knew all about that plan. Paul makes it clear that it had been revealed 
right from God's first promise to Abraham. They weren't forgetting it the way you might forget where you put your keys. No, they were forgetting it the way you forget about your own breathing. They were just, they were just going on, assuming things, not processing things, not thinking them through. They, they weren't living in the grand truths of redemption, Jew and Gentile together. They weren't doing it attentively, consciously. They weren't doing it thinking through all the application of it. So here's the, my closing word. Never, ever, you know, in, in studying the word on your own, in, in teaching in Cedarview Community Church, in any Bible study, Never, ever take lightly or ignore the work of the Holy Spirit in reminding. Never overassume. The narrow path always has its demands, so you need to keep the power of hope. That was that last fifth point. The power of hope when you honor the Lord. Keep that alive in your mind and heart. There are enough demands in life that you're going to need the power of hope over and over and over again until Jesus returned. In fact, that's why his coming is specifically called, think about it now, the blessed hope. Let it shape everything else about your life. That's quite a text we worked through. Read it over again. Think it through all over again. Let's pray. We're so thankful for the way your, your word by your spirit reaches into our minds and into our hearts with the power of hope-filled reminder. The commands aren't just given as a burden. They're given as keys that open up doors that keep us moving down the path to hope and blessedness and life in your kingdom. And so take these truths that we've studied tonight and just uh, apply them deeply, ingrain them in all of our hearts at Cedarview Community Church and beyond. I ask it in Jesus' name and I thank you. Amen. Bless you, church. It's good studying the word with you. Thanks for joining us Sunday night. Join us for our prayer time now.